Sounds comes from the Maine Community Foundation for 25 years partnering with donors and nonprofits in communities statewide to strengthen Maine through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those, in which those of, of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. What is Maine's climate future? In a recent report requested by Governor Baldacci, researchers at University of Maine and other institutions outlined the implications of continued climate change in Maine as a result of greenhouse gases and associated pollutants. That report is likely to frame how we respond as a state and adapt to the coming changes. And this morning, we have some folks in our studio who can help us with that uh, question. Welcome to George Jacobson. George is with the School of Biology and Ecology and also um, with the Climate Change Institute at University of Maine. Welcome to you, George. Thank you very much, Ron. Also in the studio, Paul Anderson. Paul Anderson is the director of the Sea Grant program at the University of Maine and no stranger to WERU because he's the occasional host of Bronze Wound. Um, I think, did you originate that show? I did a long you ago. You did a long time ago. Good morning, Welcome Ron. to you, Paul. Thanks for having me. And with us by phone is Ivan Fernandez. Uh, Ivan is uh, with the Plant, Soil, and Environmental Sciences Department at the University of Maine and also with the Climate Change Institute. Welcome to you, Ivan. Good morning. Um, let's, let's get started. Each of you can give a little background on, on yourselves uh, and your positions um, so that people have a context for the um, discussion we're having. Uh, George, we'll start with you. Uh, give us a, a very brief uh, description of your, your position, your career, uh, and how you maybe got interested in this whole issue of climate. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm a biologist, but a sort of geological biologist. And for the, my career, the last 30 years, I've been involved in trying to understand how long-term climate change, meaning hundreds and thousands of years of Earth history, has influenced plants and animals on the landscape. And my research involves studying Maine and other parts of the world and understanding those responses to warming, warmer and cooler times in the past. And uh, I came here because the university has a, a major research institute dealing with climate change and understanding Earth history and the different systems. And uh, it's been a fabulous place to have a career. So I've actually just retired from the faculty, but I'm still actively involved in, in all mm. of these things. And I agreed to serve now as the main state climatologist and to bring expertise I have from myself and my colleagues at the university to help the state that way. Mm. So long before Al Gore, there was a climate institute at the University of Maine looking at these kinds of issues. Amazingly, the institute was formed in 1972. Some really forward-looking uh, faculty members in several departments 
uh, tried to look at something that seemed like it had potential for helping Maine in the future and also doing something different. Uh, uh, people studying earth sciences, for example, in the world typically would be studying petroleum resources or maybe mineral resources for mining and things like that. And Maine isn't really poised to be very successful in those areas. But it was clear that the recent geologic history of it, from the ice ages through to, to the current day um, have really shaped our state and continue to shape our state's future and uh, both the nature of the soils and the shapes of the landscapes created by the ice itself and uh, with the changing climate through time changing our, our quantities and quality of water and the temperatures and vegetation on the landscape, the environments that people have been living in for the last 12,000 years here in Maine. And uh, so it actually turned out to be a, a very interesting idea and the, U the university's administrators at the time agreed to support this idea. It was quite novel. There was only one other institute in the entire country at that time doing something similar and that was out at the University of Washington in Seattle. And uh, But ours was turned out to be set up in a way that turned out to be very successful. And uh, we now have a, a group of at least 35 or 40 scientists from about a dozen different disciplines who all work on climate from one perspective or another. Right. I'll let, let's uh, bring Ivan into this conversation. Ivan Fernandez, um, you fit also into the Climate Change Institute. Give us a little bit of background on yourself and, and how you um, uh, contribute to the Climate Change Institute. Well, I'm a, a soil scientist. Uh, the majority of my, my focus is on uh, forest ecosystems, forest soils. Uh, and most of my career has been involved with uh, the, the, what we refer to as the biogeochemistry of forest ecosystems, how they, how they function biologically and chemically, uh, with, with an interest in understanding how disturbances, perturbations, um, what we often think of as environmental issues, uh, change that, that forest function. And, and a lot of work has gone on, on uh, in, in my program on uh, acid deposition, the deposition of sulfur and nitrogen, uh, nitrogen deposition as a, as a, a nutrient amendment, um, and climate change, the, the physical changes, uh, temperature and moisture that alter those, those systems. We've also some, done work on uh, biosolid amendments, uh, ash and, and various uh, kinds of biosolid uh, materials, and, and what happens to forest function as uh, you apply those to forests, and, and of course, uh, harvesting and management, and, and what are the, what are the uh, processes and, 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 and mechanisms of, of concern when we want to be sure we uh, maintain forest sustainability and yet uh, make the best use of uh, the rich resource of forests that we have. So I, I've been doing that for 30-plus uh, years uh, in, in my program and, of course, as the, the Climate Change Institute's activities have become uh, more, uh, more increasingly valuable and, and evident to uh, those here and, and around the world. Um, that the association with the Climate Institute allows another another venue to, to provide that kind of information for for the policy decisions and management decisions that face us today. Great, thanks. Um, and and Paul Anderson, um, as director of the Sea Grant program, you look at both uh, the research side and the the outreach side, the extension side that I'm involved in. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about your own background and and uh, Maine Sea Grant. Uh, my science training was in microbiology and. Um, 
and I spent a good part of my professional career in various forms of coastal environmental monitoring, much of it microbiologic. Um, but then uh, about 10 years ago, came back to the University of Maine where I did my education and now direct the, the Sea Grant program, which is, as you mentioned, is an integration of science and outreach and um, and education, much like the land-grant construct of our university as a whole, and the Sea Grant program being a partnership between the federal government in the form of NOAA and the state, uh, we bring federal and state resources together to try to deploy uh, those three forms of uh, information development and information management and delivery to public issues. And one of the issues certainly that has cropped up um, over time, as George mentioned, is, is the climate change issue and, and some of the more perhaps uh, acute attention being paid to some of the issues on the coast has brought climate change into Maine Sea Grants um, planning. And, uh, and also because we're part of a national network, uh, we're aware of how this issue is playing out in other parts of the country and really obligated to contribute what we can by bringing places like the Climate Change Institute and some of the policy developments in, here in Maine to the national arena as perhaps models and, and for information sharing in that way. Great. Um, George and, and Ivan, um, you were both involved in, in pulling together um, a report um, called Maine's Climate Future. What led to this uh, process and uh, what was intriguing to you about it? Um, start with uh, George and, and uh, go to Ivan in a minute. Well, in discussions about the, the fact that climate is changing all the time and that the, the changes in the chemistry of the atmosphere have already been so extreme that we're, we're really certain to be facing significant climate change as a result of human additions of greenhouse gases. We had come to realize that a lot of the attention, uh, and rightly so, was paid to figuring out ways to reduce those emissions, but not as much attention had been going to think about how we will have to adapt to the changing conditions that are inevitable now. It, it's way too late to, to prevent any changes, and um, in, in discussing these, the potential of influences of climate change on Maine's ecosystems, the freshwater systems, the marine ecosystems, and the, the terrestrial ecosystems, we realized that there were going to be big changes in Maine, very likely to be significant changes, and uh, that these would have a big influence on lots of aspects of life in Maine. And in discussions that we had with, with people in the governor's office and elsewhere, <clears throat> the idea came up that uh, the, the governor would ask us to uh, do a serious analysis of this issue to start the process that would probably be an ongoing one of, of uh, having serious discussions about policy and other decisions that are made by governments, businesses, and, and um, private individuals for that matter uh, that have implications for the future. And um, so... So, and, and, and so um, as you begin to think about that, um, you you dipped into all of the, the university's resources, or, or so many of the university's resources. That must be kind of an uh, intriguing process. Well, it was very interesting for us. Uh, you know, we, we've all known each other as colleagues around the campus, but quite often we don't know the details of what each of us does. And part of the reason that we thought it was appropriate to have <clears throat> a, a study focused just on Maine was that the previous studies, there have been a few other studies about predicting climate change in the Northeast and things like that, but they're, they're rather broad brush. They're, they're fine as they go. 
but Maine is a very unusual place. Maine has an incredible diversity of ecosystems, a diversity of climate environments, and that's true because we have the go from the coast to the continental interior up in northern Maine, and in a very short distance have a compression of climate conditions and geologic conditions and topography and so forth that is actually really unusual in the world. There are very few places that have a climate gradient as steep as the one we have in Maine. And therefore, we needed people who actually understood the Maine systems very well to make informed analyses of this. And so when we, we put the team to teams together to do the analyses, uh, we started learning details about what one another has been doing all these years. And we, it was really an interesting process for all of us. And I, I hope that shows in the report as well. Mm. Ivan, what's your take on this? Um, how did you see this process coming together? Well, I, I think George said it well as far as the, the motivation for it. The, the thought I had as I, I was listening is you know, part of part of the motivation for the early discussions that George and I and uh, others had, and, and particularly with the, with the governor's office, was um, there, there are so many really important, critical issues that seem to be converging in time, uh, climate change, carbon sequestration, the Reggie Initiative, so forth. And uh, you know, Maine's, a, Maine's a relatively small state by way of population, natural resource rich. Uh, we, we're not populated with uh, major research institutions throughout the state, um, but we do have uh, this uh, one premier land-grant, sea-grant uh, institution that's actually doing a lot relative to, to climate change, uh, and there's a lot of issues that uh, that folks are dealing with, both in the management of resources as well as in Augusta, uh, in the development of policy. So, so this was an opportunity to to sort of connect uh, some of the resources that we have, uh, perhaps uh, in a more efficient way uh, than than we have in the past. Take advantage of that that knowledge base that exists in order to help the state move forward on its adaptation planning that's uh, that's being led now by uh, DEP and Commissioner Littell's uh, group. Right, and we'll hope to speak with uh, Commissioner Littell um, uh, towards the end of the show. Um, I'll just remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about Maine's climate future. What are the implications for the state? In the studio with us, we have uh, Paul Anderson of the Maine Sea Grant Program, George Jacobson of the Climate Change Institute, and by phone, Ivan Fernandez, uh, also of the Climate Change Institute, and he's with the Plant, Soil, and Environmental Sciences Department. Uh, George, maybe we could um, get some perspective on what Maine's climate past tells us about Maine's climate future. You talked about changes that have happened um, over time and changes are going to be happening in the future. One of the very interesting things about the world is that it's never static. Mm. Uh, I think we, although we see things not change too much in our lifetimes, uh, when we see a slightly longer record in, in, uh, with evidence from geology, we've, we see that the climate is never st stable in one configuration, and that means that all of the systems, the biological and physical systems, uh, ocean currents and things like that are responding to those changes in climate continuously. And by looking at the past in detail in Maine and, in fact, globally, as we do in our institute, we now have quite good evidence about times in the past when the climate was a little warmer and how the plants and animals and even humans uh, living on Earth have responded and times when it was colder. And not just during ice ages, but there have been times over the last 
15,000 years since the last ice age when it's been cooler than present and significantly warmer. So by understanding these, the responses of different species of plants and animals and how humans have adapted in the past, we can have pretty informed uh, insights into what might happen in the future under given scenarios. And uh, of course we can get scenarios about the future from, from what we know about the modern climate and from the climate models that are used to project into the future. And, uh, but, but because we have quite detailed information about these past responses, we have, we have pretty secure information about the likely changes that will occur under any scenario that is presented. So as an as a, uh, individual, I can remember back in my lifetime, and sometimes that isn't a very good memory. We me remember some things and other, others. Sure. You're not relying on human memory to, to, to discover these changes. You're looking at a record that um, you have to read. Tell us a little bit about how you do that or how sure. some of your colleagues do that. Well, that's a very good point. When, in fact, we aren't even relying on the period the last century or so when we have instrumental measurements, when, when there were official thermometers of the kind we use today available. But it's only been about a century that we, for which we even have detailed meteorological information from the state of Maine of the sort collected by the National Weather Service today. Uh, but prior to that, we have information sometimes from historical documents. People kept diaries and told us when the ice left the lake and when there was a storm and how cold it was. And uh, But the most important records to us are, are what I would call geologic records. We can uh, look at evidence contained in lake sediments and ocean sediments in ice cores collected from Greenland, Antarctica, Mount Everest, places like that. And all of these deposits, we call those stratigraphic deposits, they're accumulations that build up in time in order, in chronologic order from the oldest at the bottom to the youngest at the top. And by looking at samples throughout those those types of deposits, we can reconstruct the nature of the environment mm -hmm. through time. And uh, in, in the case of the ice cores, uh, it's actually possible for scientists doing that to reconstruct the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in the past. And that's proven to be extremely interesting and important because we know the natural variability in carbon dioxide and we now realize that, that the additions of carbon and dioxide in the last 150 years during the industrial since the industrial revolution began have put so much carbon in the atmosphere that it's more than probably has been in the atmosphere for more than a million years mm -hmm. and it's going up very rapidly mm -hmm. so that's of course the reason people are concerned mm -hmm. but it's only by having those long-term records and being able to understand the natural variability of the earth's climate system and these these responses to it that we can put in context what's happening today. The, the natural variability is the key thing that we have to understand to be able to say whether what's happening now is unusual or not. Okay. And using a broad brush, I'll ask both you and Ivan and then get some response from, from Paul. Broad brush, what um, can we anticipate um, that we'll have to adapt to? I, Ivan, you want to give us a little bit, bit of oh. background there while George catches his breath? Okay. <laughs> um, well, uh, some of the things certainly that that we expect to, from the standpoint of climate, uh, it, it has been getting warmer. It will likely get continue to get warmer. There will be changes in the amount of precipitation, but probably more important, there will be changes in uh, the events and periods of, of wetness and dryness and periods of storm uh, or storminess. Uh, and so those kinds of things are, are, are things that we can uh, anticipate and and whether it happens to be uh, a little cooler or a little warmer for a, a particular season or a particular year doesn't 
doesn't necessarily give us much information at all about the long-term trend. So what we're talking about is how climate evolves over uh, multiple years and decades and, and over the next century. And over the next century, it's it, it very likely to continue to get warmer, um, a, as well as changes in precipitation. And we also have a changing chemical climate. Um, and when we say that, uh, we're talking about carbon dioxide itself uh, is influencing as a uh, as a gas, uh, in influencing ecosystems, plants grow faster when you increase the concentration of carbon dioxide. We still have acid rain. We've improved uh, significantly sulfur deposition um, by maybe 50 percent in this, this corner of the country. Uh, but nitrogen deposition uh, is largely unchanged, and nitrogen also will promote uh, growth. Uh, and then there's other sorts of uh, organic pollutants, et, et cetera, that are that are in the environment. So, so these trajectories will will continue, and uh, our our challenge is to understand uh, what we can do to to minimize those those consequences, uh, and, and and adapt and take advantage of new opportunities. Great, George. We we have looked into the future using the best information we have from modern climate models. And the modern climate models are very similar, in some ways identical, to the, the, the big computer models that predict our weather weekly. And although we tend to make fun of weather forecasters, the, the, they're quite good, actually. They're very sophisticated. And the understanding of the global climate system is, is actually quite high. And to make our estimates for the future, the, the strategy we used for our report was to um, take a mid-level estimate based on the computer models, a whole set of computer models, uh, and see what they project forward, making some assumptions about the amount of carbon that will be in the atmosphere. And we sort of, we, we also took a mid-level estimate of that. We didn't take an extreme estimate. And all of those models are consistent in saying that it's likely to be warmer. Let me backtrack again and just for a minute say that we know we're adding an enormous amount of fossil carbon to the atmosphere by mostly by burning of fossil fuels. We know that greenhouse gases trap heat and the fact that we're likely to have much more carbon in the atmosphere and that that carbon does trap heat means that the earth will get warmer. I mean it's really that simple. The details of exactly where and how that heat will be distributed is much more complicated but the, the basic facts are simple. When we apply the climate models to our region, and to Maine in particular, it, it appears quite strongly that the climate will be getting warmer in all seasons, and somewhere perhaps is in the 5 to 10 degree Fahrenheit range warmer on a, on a seasonal basis. Uh, it could be that much. And also wetter, possibly with the exception of summer. Summer might stay about the same uh, amount of moisture, although that actually tends with the net change means drier summers because the plants in warmer conditions there would be more evaporation and more growth of the plants which takes water from the system. So what we're looking at is a, a warmer and possibly somewhat wetter Maine in the future and we use that information to help us then assess the changes in the ecosystems. Mm. So let's let's take the, um, the forests, for instance, Ivan. Um, with a warmer, wetter climate, uh, what are we going to see in, in Maine's forest? In Maine, you make a point in the in the report that Maine is the heaviest forested state in the nation. So we have some big implications there. Sure. 
Well, um, as I uh, as I said a minute ago, um, there's a number of things that are changing and have been changing that undoubtedly our forests are already responding to in ways that uh, are sometimes uh, difficult to see and sometimes we're, we're, we're not really looking in the detail that, that would be required. But uh, forests are predicted to grow more. Uh, we should have an environment that probably will be better for forest growth uh, as we move into the future because of the combination of uh, warming, uh, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide, all of which will, will promote growth. One of the one of the interesting complexities in in forests and in agriculture and, uh, and other systems is that while we can have more precipitation overall, uh, when we get later in the growing season, uh, such as August, when we all know it's typically hottest and driest, even though we may have the same amount of rainfall in our future climate as temperatures go up, the amount of evaporation and transpiration goes up and, and soil moisture depletion is expected to increase. So that, that window may be somewhat of an Achilles heel in the, the interplay among, uh, among species. But overall, trees will grow better, but they will be different levels of competition, and the composition of the forest will change. And I, I'm not going to go beyond that uh, at this point, because in your studio, you've got one of the world's experts on the impacts of climate change on shifting forest species. So I'll, I'll turn it back to, to George in a, in a second. The other thing that's, of course, going to happen in our forests is uh, the, the seasonality of how we are used to interacting with it will change, uh, which influence when we harvest and how we recreate and wildlife, uh, you know, earlier springs, perhaps different timing of mud seasons, uh, longer growing seasons will change the, the way uh, humans interact with that environment, both economically and, and, and recreationally. Uh, and so there's, there's both challenges and opportunities uh, that, that uh, exist right now because we've already seen um, uh, changes taking place. There's evidence of, of earlier leaf out and earlier blooms in the spring, earlier ice out on lakes. Uh, so this is not a future happening. This is a happening that we're actually adapting to right now. Uh, we just don't think of it that way, and we will have to do more of that certainly in the future. Great. Ivan, uh, thanks so much for being with us. I understand you're part of a, um, uh, a colloquium of some sort, and we'll let you go back to that there on the, on the campus. But thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Great. Bye-bye Ivan Fernandez of the Climate Change Institute, University of Maine. Um, George, we'll come to you then and talk about changes in, in the composition of the forest, and then we'll go to Paul um, and talk about some of the marine effects. We're, we're here on Talk of the Towns, here on WERU. Um, in the studio with us are George Jacobson and Paul Anderson, both of the University of Maine. Uh, George, how about the composition of the forest? What's going to be happening there based on, on your research? Well, we can, we can expect the forest to change in a, in a way that makes the, the species that do well south of us be more abundant here. That's a pretty simple way to think about it, and it's pretty common sense. Uh, we so, act, so, so trees like, just give a, a couple well, of examples. Well, oaks, oaks and hardwoods that do well, think of Connecticut, for example, uh, will, are likely to be more successful in, in as moving northward, and species at the southern range of their limits, like spruce and fir, balsam fir, and some other conifers, uh, might not be as successful. In fact, one of the interesting things we've learned from our our paleoecological research is that the spruce fir forests that, that are 
so important in northern northern and eastern Maine today and important for our economy, uh, really expanded southward into Maine only in the last thousand years because it got a little cooler about 600 years ago. Mm. And it's a very recent change that the, the forests became the way they are. And we think that that southern expansion of the what we call the boreal forest elements occurred because of a cooling of about two degrees Fahrenheit in summer temperatures, that's all. Mm. And of course now we're talking about in the next century warming up considerably more than that. So it's very likely that the species at the, their southern limits won't be able to reproduce and be as successful as they are now and species from the south will move north. And uh, of course this is, it's important to say that the report and, and statements like this are not value judgments. They're describing the changes that will take place and it, it's not necessarily, it doesn't be, have to be something that is negative or even isn't it an opportunity for Maine because uh, it may very well be under the new climate uh, configuration that the forests are actually more productive and are able to produce more biomass per unit area than is the case today, but it will be different. And mm -hmm. the fiber nature of the fiber will be different. And that means that we need to be thinking about several cultural practices, about different uh, possible commercial uses of the forests and what kinds of products will make sense under the new configuration uh, compared to what we've maybe assumed to be the case for the last 100 or 200 years. And when we talk about policy changes that the state might be pl uh, taking, they might have to take some of that into account as they think about the future of the northern forest. I think that the, the state, I think people who are practicing forestry on the ground today mm. should be thinking. Several cultural decisions about which species to favor uh, in the future should be thinking, at least using the climate information to, to help make decisions because assuming the status quo is a mistake there's mm. no doubt about that and i see people who are making any decisions that have implications 20 40 60 100 years into the future and many people do actually if mm -hmm. they think about it should include this in part of the part of the equation and um, foresters bankers make decisions that have long-term implications certainly policymakers at the state regional and local level are who are making decisions about all sorts of things have long-term implications. Uh, insurance companies, I mean, that, that's actually what the report is all about. All these different aspects of life in Maine and the economy in Maine that are influenced by it uh, mm. are addressed in the report. Great. Let's go to Paul Anderson now. Paul, as uh, your work with Sea Grant, you probably have a window on some of the things that um, might be happening as a result of climate change on the marine uh, front. Yeah, certainly, Ron. The, um, <clears throat> the report has several sections and tries to address all of these different sectors, some of which we've talked about already on the program. One of them certainly is a chapter on the marine and coastal side. I had the pleasure of helping to pull that together with a lot of help from um, the the powerhouse that we have in the School of Marine Sciences at the University of Maine, uh, Dr. Fei Chai, uh, really coordinating a lot of the writing on that and several other contributors. Um, certainly the Gulf of Maine ends up being the recipient of the good, the bad, and the ugly of what we do here on land and trying to understand what that all means, some of what you heard from Ivan and George with regard to increased precipitation, uh, changes certainly in the physical and chemistry of the water in the Gulf of Maine are being driven by what the climate models say. There's a whole discipline of oceanography that's trying to take that atmospheric information and predictions and and create their own models and, and gain a better understanding of what does it mean for 
for the marine and oceanographic conditions, much of what happens in the Gulf of Maine ends up being driven by you know, global events and global circulation patterns. So when we think about increasing atmospheric temperatures, well, there's probably melt going on. And we've all heard about polar melt and, and to the north of us. Well, that fresh water that results from that ends up um, perturbing the, the, um, the currents offshore, which end up coming down along the northwest Atlantic, along this side of the Atlantic, and, and in many ways influence what goes on in, in smaller circulation patterns within the Gulf of Maine. So all that to say that there's some com complexities and uncertainty around what is going to happen with, um, with the marine environment. But if you think about those physical changes that may happen, both physical and chemical, sea level rise is certainly a concern for coastal communities. Um, changes in the temperature of the, the water is, is likely to have both physical, chemical, and ultimately biological impacts. Um, there's likely to be changes in how the salinity patterns and the, nu the nutrient uh, fluctuations that take place in the Gulf of Maine um, will happen over the coming decades because of these physical, uh, physical changes and shifts. So there's a certain amount of uncertainty in terms of understanding what does that mean for the people of the coast of Maine, but if you just look at those few pieces, sea level rise, Although it's likely that the, the, the natural environment has a certain amount of resiliency to sea level rise, for example, our low-lying coastal wetlands, as I understand it, there may be inundation or flooding of these coastal wetlands, but if sea level rise is slow enough, there's actually a biological process that, that built these natural um, wetlands in the first place that will probably respond to that and be somewhat resilient unless sea level rise happens really abruptly. What's less resilient is us mm. and uh, some of the built environment and some of the human uses that are that may be more vulnerable because of a changing sea level along our coast need to be considered and so you know that's where are we putting our our storm drain and uh, sewage treatment plants and and how are, how are, how are the, the those things being engineered when the receiving body that is our Gulf of Maine um, is changing in its um, in its 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 height and then transportation and some of the other infrastructural things that we put in place along the coast of Maine may have some vulnerabilities as well so those themes are touched on a bit in the report there's also I'll just uh, touch on the one issue around um, the uh, uh, chemistry of the water and the possibility of acidification of our oceans and changing the pH of the ocean and uh, it's as I understand it, the scientists are really surprised at the changes that have happened in the last decade or two with the pH of the ocean. There was always this assumption, and I had it in, when I was being trained in, in school, that the ocean had a real buffering capacity with all of its salts and all of its composition that you know it would really be hard to change the pH significantly of the ocean. But that's proven to not be true, and the oceans are actually vulnerable to that. And what's happening in other parts of the world and perhaps could happen here in the Gulf of Maine is that the marine organisms that depend on um, calciferous or hard structures like clams and lobsters and crustaceans depend on um, putting calcium into their shells and, and having a, a biological process that, that is apparently really vulnerable to pH and the availability of, of the calcium and the other chemistry that goes into their whole life, uh, physiology is vulnerable to that kind of a change. So what does that mean? Well, perhaps we could see some uh, challenging um, environments to the organisms that are trying to live here in Maine that we're relying on. So they may be more vulnerable to disease, may be less of a viable population.
Um, so there's a certain amount of uncertainty with all of that, but there are certainly going to be um, some potential biological effects on the organisms we, we grow to uh, get used to here in our coast. Great. So both um, impacts on, on uh, coastal de development patterns, um, perhaps, and also um, because of sea level change, but also ha what use we make of the creatures um, in the ocean. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm glad now to welcome uh, Commissioner David Littell from the Department of Marine, uh, excuse me, the Department of Environmental Protection uh, from Augusta. Welcome to you, David. Good morning, Ron and Thank Paul. And George uh, Jacobson is here in the studio with us as well. So um, gl glad to have you with us as part of this conversation, uh, thinking about um, the state's response. Um, the governor's office requested this report. Um, David, your agency is, is kind of charged with, well, let's think about what are the implications. So give us a little bit of background on, on how uh, Department of Environmental Protection ended up with this particular role. Well, climate change um, and implementation of what's called mitigation in the climate change world, which is reducing greenhouse gas emissions to eventually um, reverse the trend that we see. It's, a, it's obviously a huge effort, but we're doing our part in the state of Maine. And we, we soon hope to see our federal government doing its part, and then internationally what we really need is a treaty, so we, we do it in every country. Um, but starting with that sort of worldview, um, we've been charged with a mitigation mission, so it was natural to for us to coordinate um, what the impacts might be and uh, for what is inevitable at this point, because as I'm sure you've already covered, even if we were to reverse and significantly reduce our carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions immediately, we are going to see this effect um, because of the amount of carbon dioxide and, and methane and other gases that have been put into the atmosphere. So how are we going to deal with it? And with that concern, the governor um, asked the University of Maine to um, coordinate a response of our leading specialists in the state, which George and Ivan Fernandez headed up and really produced a tremendously strong report. And um, so the, the, the report is part of the conversation that will uh, continue as we think about adapting to the climate change that, that, that's coming. Um, what has the beginning of that conversation looked like since the report was issued um, earlier this year? Well, and I think, I mean, I'd be a little bit stronger than that. This report, I think, is a good basis to have that conversation on. It really sets forth what scientists are seeing now and then some reasonable extrapolations on what we expect to see in the future. Um, but it documents the changes that are occurring in our ecosystems and some of our built environments now, the amount of sea level rise we're seeing, increased precipitation, migration of, of wildlife and plants farther north as, as the atmosphere warms. So this report is really, it's a tremendous contribution, and I was very pleased to see it because we'd already been working on this idea of pulling together an adaptation stakeholders group to um, parallel the original Maine Climate Action Plan, which was developed 2003-2004 under the legislature's mandate, and then when we saw this report, we said this is perfect. This is the basis on which we can move forward. But the, res the response has been for the legislature to enact and the governor to sign the governor's proposal to do a broad-ranging stakeholders group to look at what the impacts of our changing climate might be on all parts of Maine, on the, the human environment, on the ecological environment, the marine environment and to ask those questions, well, what can we do as governmental entities? What can we do working with private industry? And um, what can we do with wildlife managers, forestry managers, to um, be prepared for these changes that are coming? So has the stakeholder group um, been uh, set up yet, or is that in the process? Yes. No, the law, law was passed and signed by the governor, and we had our first meeting last week. went very well. 
Great. Tell us a little bit about um, the, the makeup of, of the group and, and what your um, uh, time frame is. Well, the group, like the original Climate Action Stakeholders Group, um, is a very broad cross-section of um, businesses. The main Chamber of Commerce and Industry, for example, is, is serving on it. So is the Maine Forest Products Council because they realize that they may see species change. They'll also see increased precipitation. But some of, the, um, some of the things that we might do on the mitigation side also have the potential to help and assist them in the amount of, of forestry wood that's produced. We may be planting different species. We may be much more actively managing some of our forests and putting um, resources into more active stocking to sequester more carbon. Well, that has an impact on the adaptation side. You know, how, how are we going to adapt our forests to do that? So um, broad sector on the business side. Um, Maine Municipal is also invited because ultimately we'll, we'll, and DOT is one of the many agencies that's represented. DOT has already been looking at impacts for what they should look at for the road designs. When they're close to the shore, they have to look at sea level impacts. When in, anywhere in the state, they have to look at the increased precipitation that we're seeing, which clearly was an issue several years ago in southern Maine and in New Hampshire where we had a lot of culverts washed out because the amount of rain that came down was much greater than it ever come down before. Um, and so those changes we're going to make at the state level, the municipalities then, we will be recommending them as design standard changes to our 450 municipalities for their culvert size requirements as well. So the idea is, is to um, use this process, uh, use the report, um, generate um, some recommendations for policy changes that will help us um, as a state, as municipalities, as industries adapt to um, the, the coming climate change. Absolutely, and see if we can get ahead of some of the things we expect. I mean, it'll become, as, as George is the expert, it'll become increasingly difficult for fir and spruce to uh, grow in some parts of the state. So what does that mean for long-term stocking strategies and for what the pulp and paper and the mills should expect um, out 50 and 100 years? Mm. And are there benchmarks or, or time uh, pieces that um, citizens should be uh, kind of watching for as, as the task force move, moves ahead? Well, we, the legislature asked us to give an, uh, an interim report next year, but this is we're really looking at a longer process. The interim report will be the first immediate report back to the legislature, and that will be in March of next year. Um, but this group is meeting. Um, we're going to be posting where we're meeting on the DEP website. Um, they're public meetings, so any member of the public is, is invited to attend. And uh, we'll be meeting at various different, um, different locations throughout the state. The steering committee is the overall steering committee, but a lot of the actual um, work, in fact, most of the work will happen in the working groups where we expect to have um, double the participation that we have at the steering committee level. And in, in developing our climate action plan and the 55 measures that are in that, the bulk of the work really happened in the subgroups. Um, and they just bring back their recommendations that if the subgroups have done their work the right way are simply adopted by the steering committee. So. The work group meetings will be very significant, and those are broken down into the built human environment and looking at changes there, our, um, marine ecosystems and marine human systems. Obviously, the fishing community and lobster communities are concerned with what may happen in the marine areas um, and the ecological areas, what we might do for wildlife management. And the last working group is rural and indigenous people, impacts on the more rural, rural parts of the state. How might those be different? So again, um, uh, listeners can go to the DEP website to find out more about um, this initiative. Yes.
Great. Well, thanks for so much for being with us this morning. Um, I know you've got a busy legislative uh, session uh, going on, so we'll let you go. But thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Commissioner David Littell of the Department of Marine, uh, I'm all saying that again, um, Environmental Protection. Um, I'll list our phone numbers uh, if you'd like to give us a call in the last uh, quarter hour here to participate in this conversation about Maine climate future. Uh, give us a call at one 866 625-9378 or locally 469-0500 toll free 1-866-625-9378 well the the, the state is, is kind of using the policy uh, process um, I suppose this conversation between the research side and the policy side will, will go on for a long time George how do you and you're, you're the state climatologist so you're kind of in the middle of that at this point it seems that way, and mm -hmm. uh, it's it's something that I'm enjoying. I one of the interesting things about it, I, I think I said earlier that uh, it was we made a, a very strong effort in writing this report not to have a doom and gloom kind of report mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. talk about the sky is falling or something, but to talk as as clearly as we can about and objectively about the changes that are likely to take place based on the best human understanding of these systems. And it's really obvious that there are some probably great opportunities for Maine. Uh, you know, one might, a lot of people would probably think after last January, it would, wouldn't be the end of the world if we had a little bit shorter winters and, and longer summers and falls. And, uh, you know, that's, there's a lot to that. Sure. And, uh, in fact, one of the very interesting sections in the report has to do with tourism and recreation. Mm -hmm. And uh, people who have a lot of expertise in that area tried to, look forward and see what that meant. What, it, what did it mean to have slightly different winters and longer summers and falls, a little bit warmer conditions? Um, and, you know, it, there are some implications. There are some real opportunities there, just as there are with different types of forests, uh, different conditions on the coast, and, and uh, uh, there certainly will be some things that we'll probably uh, be sorry to see change, but on the other hand, the, the systems will keep operating, and the biological natural systems will keep operating and, and uh, as humans we'll be adapting to those things and the sooner we start to think about logical ways to do that and be successful at it, the better we'll be. Mm. And uh, that was the whole gist of our report and I give Commissioner Littell tremendous credit for moving ahead. Uh, he's really been among the leaders in the country in preparing his state for uh, the changes in the future. He's He's also been involved in, in the uh, uh, idea of carbon credits and a, and a process called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which involves having a market to, to sell carbon credits uh, and to, is a mechanism to reduce emissions. And uh, he was one of the a group of, of people from about nine northeastern states that put the first of these together, and it's now successfully functioning. So he, we're very fortunate to have leadership in Augusta that uh, has taken these issues seriously and doing some creative things to try to prepare me. I, I don't think I've ever seen something that has been as seamless in terms of, of the policymakers asking for the report, the report being delivered, and then beginning to um, take it seriously and, and move ahead. Um, I think it's just a, a really remarkable um, change in how often these kinds of things work. Um, I believe we have a phone call. Let's take that phone call here on Talk of the Towns. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, this is Rich from Subban. Good morning. Good morning. And um, I was wondering uh, what kinds of um, planning being done around uh, 
insect-borne diseases and just the amounts of insects that are going to be popping up more and more. That's a great question, and, and it relates to one chapter in the, in the report around uh, human health. Uh, um, George, you're not an expert there, but you probably have a, um, a general sense of, of what we might be seeing there. In fact, I could expand it slightly. We could talk also about agricultural pests. Uh, it's the same idea. Uh, and certainly we could expect that there would be, be different kinds of, whether it be human vectors carrying human disease or, or plant, diseases for plants and animals shifting to the north. And uh, those are addressed a bit in the report. It's very difficult to under know the details of what will happen. There are several things happening in the world right now that make, make this whole issue so complicated. One is climate change itself, and we can expect some of the things that are at their northern ranges that, are, that we think of as pests to be more abundant in Maine, no question about it. But there is also a tremendous process going on unintentionally in the world of moving species around and uh, what we call invasive species or non-native species that are being transferred usually inadvertently from one part of the world to another. And we have so many species that aren't native to North America or to Maine that have been introduced here and we really don't understand very well just how they will respond to climate change. Those haven't been studied in the same way we've studied our natural species. And that would go for species that are involved in transmitting human disease as well as uh, pests for agricultural and forestry. And uh, I suppose I more. Go oh. ahead, go ahead, Rich. Um, uh, I hope that we're not going to be uh, going the Monsanto way. Just to Could you speak up just a bit? Yeah, I, I hope that we we're not going to go, you know, with uh, the uh, bi with the um, biologically uh, changed organisms to uh, keep up with the uh, climate change. That's a, that's a good point. We'll see if we can get some response. Thanks so okay. much for your call Thank this morning. Thank you. Yep. I'll go off the air now. Okay. And if others would like to participate this morning, 1-866-625-9378. Um, so this question of how do we respond, do, do we use um, uh, the, the, the chemical way <laughs> to, to eliminate pests? I was going to ask if, if climate change was going to do anything about black flies, but um, maybe not. Paul Anderson. I just wanted to add in response to Rich's concerns, uh, you know, I agree that hopefully our, uh, you know, I think he's alluding to some of our agricultural practices, but I think, um, I'm not an expert on this, but our Bureau of Health and uh, the health experts in Maine have already begun to um, enhance their monitoring and observation systems for things like Lyme disease, which we know has begun to creep up into northern New England and uh, trying to learn from states like Connecticut and others uh, how they're doing surveillance um, for that kind of a, uh, a problem which has health impacts and uh, and I'm sure there are, are constraints, funding constraints on doing the most adequate kind of monitoring and observations um, but I, I would just add that we, we in society and certainly our government has to figure out a way to uh, enhance and sustain the collection of the kinds of information, observations and monitoring of many of these kinds of things. Some of them that, that may have acute human health impacts like Rich is alluding to, but there's even others, other measures that we ought to be um, making sure that we're collecting. Much of the data that, that uh, George and Ivan have alluded to over in the past and over the, the you know, paleo record um, would have been enhanced had we had really you know, technology-based um, 
observations. We have the opportunity to track this, and change is going to continue in, in society's future, and I think it's incumbent on us to be measuring and monitoring these things so that we can make better informed decisions around how we respond. And I suppose citizens um, may have a role in the monitoring process. Uh, Paul, you were part of a, a real change in, in how state government did that because you really did kind of facilitate citizen science, uh, citizens getting involved in looking at the marine uh, ecosystem and, and um, using scientifically based methods, providing useful information. Yes, that's, and that's an exciting opportunity for engaging um, citizens and, and because science is not magic. Science is something that everybody can participate in to some degree or another. And Ivan and I had a great conversation one day about, wow, if we could find the, the right kinds of health indicators, natural science, natural system indicators and others along the coast, that, that we can get the public to help us make these observations. And whether it's ice out or leaf change or you know things that, are, that can actually be an enjoyable way to get people out understanding their environment and collecting some observations that we at the university or in state agencies can begin to um, compile and keep as a record, we may find that um, we, we have a good reason to bring people a little bit closer to the nature they live in. Mm. And so in response to Rich's uh, concern, we don't have someone who, who's directly involved in the agricultural side. Um, that certainly suggests a, a future uh, topic and some future guests, so thanks for that. one 625 9378 if you'd like to participate in this morning's conversation about Maine's climate future. George, do you have a comment? I was just going to say one of the interesting opportunities we have here in terms of public participation is through the schools mm. because many of the observations of the sort that are actually quite useful can be made by school classes and teachers and and as the years go by and we have more information and even within a given year have the spatial patterns of change of say the coming of spring mm. across Maine think of how easy it would be and how neat it would be to to look at things like ice out or the first uh, when the when the lilacs are blooming, you could name all sorts of things that people can make observations and and uh, put into the the database that uh, will help in the long run to see these changes through time. We haven't talked about freshwater ecology very much, but um, that same system of monitoring exactly. is very active in the state of Maine around helping having citizens help evaluate, monitor um, changing conditions in our freshwater systems. Precisely. Mm. Um, as, as citizens hear all, all of uh, this, um, uh, George, you mentioned that you placed an emphasis on not focusing on gloom and doom, but on some of the opportunities. How would you suggest that a citizen uh, kind of read this report? Uh, what, would they what, would, what would you like them to take away from, from this report? Well. First, I'd like them to read it, and they can actually do that if they're interested. By uh, It's available online uh, if they care to look. The, the Climate Change Institute website at the University of Maine has right on its front page the report available to be downloaded. So if anybody would like to do that, please do. Um, but I, I think readers, um, I hope, would be interested in, in what, it, what it tells us about the state of Maine's climate and... Uh, what might be happening in the future and about our natural systems. But what we hope is that it triggers their interest and involvement in discussing just these issues that were raised by Rich. Mm. The, the caller who was bringing up the issue of how will we deal with things like invasive species that we don't like and should we use uh, genetic engineering to deal with it or perhaps chemical sprays or should we use natural processes or ignore it altogether. These are social decisions. We, mm. we need to make this. and. Uh, I definitely don't, wouldn't leave it to scientists just to decide the outcome of these things. 
But there are many issues that will have very significant social implications for communities. And I think if people inform themselves and then get involved, they will have done exactly what's necessary. Let's take a very quick call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Oh, okay, go ahead. Um, one more thing. We, we do uh, monitoring of, of uh, things already, like uh, when, the, when the peepers come out, mm -hmm. when the wood frogs start quacking. And, um, and I bet a lot of people are already doing that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I would say that, that there needs to be some sort of somebody to, to get all that, that information together like have a newsletter or something that will alert people, you know, to turn in their information. Great. We may, we may see some of that um, come out. There's going to be a new, um, uh, on your website, There's, you're going to have that kind of newsletter. We're actually going to have a, uh, a newsletter called Maine, Maine Climate News that uh, should be available soon, and we're hoping to use that as one of the mechanisms for involving people and helping pull together information of this kind. There is an awful lot of interest among people in making observations about natural history and comparing it year to year. We, I think we're all fascinated by it, or many of us. And so we're hoping that we can do more of just what Rich has suggested and try to make use of all of the observations around the state. Great. It's a great pa idea. Paul, as, as we close, uh, what inspiration do you take from, from this kind of work? Well, uh, as you know, Ron, in, earlier in my career, I helped to um, foster uh, environmental monitoring and engaging citizens in doing that in coastal water quality and beach erosion and many things like that. And certainly we've, we've built some systems that legitimize it, make it accessible, and ensure that the information can be used. And so we have some experience in building what Rich is talking about. We don't have those systems right in place right now, but I suspect through the partnerships that may come out of what Commissioner Littell's group wants to do, other capacity that we have at the university for data management and the programs like Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension and our interest in, in enabling that there in, in, the, in the Internet and being able to just come up with a way for people to enter some intriguing information in a systematic way that's somewhat quality controlled so that we know it's reliable is it's doable it takes some resources and some coordination but it's it's really exciting to think of engaging them that way great well we've come to that time when i want to remind you that this program was produced with support from cooperative extension and the hancock county extension association with offices in each county cooperative extension is the major educational outreach program of the university of maine our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests this morning, George Jacobson of the School of Biology and Ecology and the Climate Change Institute, Ivan Fernandez of the Plant, Soil and Environmental Sciences Department of the University of Maine, also the Climate Change Institute. Paul Anderson was with us uh, here in the studio with the Maine Sea Grant Program, and David Littell, Commissioner of the Department of Environmental Protection. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to the, those of you who called in with your questions. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is your host, Ron Beard, wishing you a good morning. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Coastal Drilling and Blasting Incorporated, serving Downey, Central, and Midcoast, Maine, and located at 328 Bucksport Road, Ellsworth, 1-800-640-3515.